is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome back to Decode, the Batuta Advocates political podcast. It's an exciting week for us here. Um, Wendell Hussey joined by Dior Dave in the studio here at the Desert Rock FM studios. And we have an exciting guest who is going to be talking to us today. One of, I'd say, the most powerful figures in Australian politics right now. Probably one of the most powerful figures in Australia. He's the man who turned the tap on for a teal bath at the 2022 federal election. And uh, it is, of course, Mr. Simon Holmes Court who dials in and he's joining us today. Thanks very much, Simon. Thanks, Wendell, and great to meet you, you and Dave. Yeah, you too. Now, I just wanted to start off by asking, going back a bit in your family, your great, 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 great grandfather was a conservative UK politician in the 1700s, and so have a lot of men in your family been since then. How do you think he would feel about his descendant helping to tear apart the conservative stronghold in one of Britain's colonies? (laughs) Um, <laughs> well, certainly, um, yeah, there've been yeah a few interesting men on in my family family history. I don't think that the Liberal Party really has been a conservative party for quite a while. I think um, uh, it's been a reactionary party at times. It's been a populist party, but as far as protecting the institutions that make our society strong. I think the Liberal Party has let down conservatism. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, it's, uh, that I've betrayed conservatism at, at all. Look, I, I spent a fair bit of time trying to work with the Liberal Party to have them come around to the, the position of science on, on, on climate change. And um, after many um, frustrations and rebukes, I... Um, thought, well, if change from the inside is not possible, then change from the outside, is, it's going to have to be. Yeah. So I don't want to put words into your mouth, but would you say that if the Liberal Party has changed over time, would you call yourself a conservative? And do you think your politics have remained quite consistent during the time that you've been, you know, associated with the Liberal Party and now in your own movement? So I was never, I was never a member uh, of the Liberal Party. I've worked, I've worked with members of, of all parties, but I did spend a fair bit of time uh, advocating to and help and, and helping members of the Liberal Party. I'm, I'm a centrist, and I think, I think most Australians are. We, we often talk about Liberal voters and Labor voters and Greens voters, but I think most Australians don't see themselves as left or right. Most Australians have pretty moderate views. They, they believe in good financial management, but they also are socially fairly progressive. I think we sit in the middle. And we have such a small palette to choose from when we end up going to the, the polling booth. I mean, the, the candidates they put up in front of us generally are not ones that we've chosen, but they've been chosen by these very small clubs. They're called political parties. Yeah, they're, they're tiny, tiny clubs. And the people who are members of them are not a cross-section of society. In many cases, it's dominated by older men. And a very small number of people who are ambitious put themselves 
up for pre-selection. They go through these elaborate rituals of building networks of obligation and, and favour. And then those people get put on a ballot paper and we have to choose between them. And, we, and if we choose one way, we get called a Labor voter. If we choose the other way, we get called a Liberal voter or Greens or you know, other minor parties. What happened at the last federal election is that there was a record number of communities that put a candidate up. And uh, the communities went to great care to find people who represented the community who were loyal only to that community, who are outstanding uh, individuals, successful in their own right before they came to politics, who weren't going into politics because they had some great ego trip or had had a lifelong passion for politics, but people who had been almost dragged to politics to represent the community. Those people had a real chance to be put in front of the electorate at, at, at the last federal election, and a whole bunch of them won. Um, a record a record number. There are now more people on the crossbench than there are Nationals MPs in the lower house. Quite a growing force. We've never had a crossbench, not not in uh, modern political history have we had a crossbench of this size. Yeah, and I think it's interesting what you mentioned there about those people who were kind of dragged into the political sphere. They're almost, you might say, actually representative of our democracy rather than just lawyers who joined the Labor Party at the age of 35 or uh, young Liberal staffers who work their way through and then end up getting a nice seat. You're, it's often in the media depicted as a Simon Holmes Accord backed teal independent or a Climate 200 backed teal independent. But we never, for example, hear about the club's New South Wales backed Labor Party or the BHP backed National Party. How do you feel when you constantly see the teal independents referenced as that? Yeah, I, I used to spend a fair bit of time talking to journos. Uh, you know, they'd, they'd publish something like, yeah, you know, let's say Simon Holmes Accord's candidate or Climate 200's candidate, uh, I'd spend a fair bit of time trying to track down the journal and asking them if they could, you know, put, put, it, put in the same point, you know, why, why don't they talk about, you know, the Woodside Prime Minister or the Santos leader of the opposition or the club's New South Wales, as you said. And um, some journalists go, oh, yeah, you're right, I've never thought of that and, and you know, try a bit harder. Others are clearly on a crusade to mm. try to... Uh, yeah, find, find this movement threatening to the House view that politics belongs to the majors or particularly politics belongs to the, to the Liberal Party is a dominant view, as you imagine, in one part of the media. It is frustrating because this movement started long before I got involved. And, you know, I bristled at your introduction. I'm not the mastermind behind this movement and I don't really get to choose where it goes. And I've, you know, Climate 200 even doesn't doesn't get involved in the establishment of community campaigns, never gets involved in, uh, in the selection of candidates. This movement started back in 2012 in, in the Northern Victorian seat of Indi. There was an active conversation going on in the community of why do all the young people keep leaving? Indi, you must, you must see this kind of problem up in Batuta yeah. where young people look at the bright yeah. light and people say, why, why are they not, why are they leaving and not coming back? Well, it's a lack of uh, educational, tertiary educational opportunities, no broadband, crappy public transport, very little remote working opportunities. All of these things made the city much more attractive. And a lot of people said, you know, I just can't see myself moving back to Indi until you know until retirement. They identified that one of the reasons is the community had been overlooked. You know, a lot of those things can be fixed, but the community had been taken for granted because it had been a uh, liberal-held stronghold for generations. And they thought, well, the way to address this is let's turn the seat marginal. The only way to get attention in Australian politics is if your seat is contested. So. They set up a community campaign. They went looking for the best person they could find to represent the community, and they chose Kathy McGowan. You know, yep. people 
often say Cathy McGowan started the movement. Now, Cathy McGowan was the first community independent selected by a community group in the, in the movement. They, they put, they ran this great community campaign. It captured the hearts and minds in Indi, and they won by only something like 457 votes. It was very, very tight. They didn't expect to win. They thought they'd just take it marginal, but they won. And then Cathy McGowan was re-elected in 2016. She um, signaled that she wanted to retire at the end of that second term. And so the community selected Helen Haynes to run and Helen won and then just got re-elected. Uh, that was in 2019 and got re-elected in 2022. So there's now sort of four elections in a row that community has chosen a community independent. And along the way, a group used a fairly similar model, but adapted, adopted for uh, local conditions in Warringah when Zali Stegall was chosen by a community group, put up, community rallied behind, and Tony Abbott lost his seat to Zali Stegall, and she was just returned with a greater primary. So this model started long before us. The media reported as an overnight success in May, but it's been chugging along and growing quite strongly, uh, obviously. I mean, I'd done some work with, with independents before, and, and I had some in, some understanding of this movement, but what, what we saw is if they... If they, if these groups are going to compete against the majors, then they need financial resources. They need mm. they need to be able to advertise like the big parties do. They need a leg up to be on a level playing field with the majors, and that's where Climate Two Hundred came in. We're a crowdfunding campaign. We eleven thousand two hundred donors from every one of Australia's one hundred and fifty one electorates. Third of our donors are from rural rural and regional electorates. So we've built this group who understand the value of the independents and are happy to help, keen to help them compete on a level playing field with, with the majors. And that's, that's what happened last May. So I didn't, I don't control who stands and who stands where and which communities do this kind of thing. But when we see the right things coming together in a community that mean that they're competitive, we're, we're there to help. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned there as well that it's essentially leveling out the playing field and allowing independent voices to have the same resources as the major parties, which the major parties seem to be so angry about the fact that there are independent voices within the community who have basically resources to run a successful campaign against them. I did want to know, and I just wanted to take it back a little bit, obviously long lineage of businessmen, other people in your family, uh, your brothers have been involved in business, you were involved in business before politics. One of your brothers, say, went and bought a rugby league team and got invested in the South Sydney Rabbitohs and um, dedicated a lot of time to that. What made you choose politics over, say, buying the Hawthorne Hawks or picking up the Sydney Swans? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I got got involved in a a community wind farm project about 16 years ago. I, I, my wife and I have a farm in, in central Victoria. Uh, it's, it's around the great little town of, of, of Dalesford. And one, one morning my wife came back from, from town saying there's this guy in the main street who's got this idea, he wants to build a community-owned wind farm. You'd probably get on well with him. So I went the next weekend. He's, um, he'd set up a card table in the main street every Saturday morning and he is a Danish national, Pierre, Pierre Bernard's his name, and uh, he's a local builder, um, but he grew up in Denmark where wind farms are owned by communities in, in general. Most, most, wind farm, most, most wind turbines in Denmark are owned by farmers or local councils or individuals or, or cooperatives. And he, he had this vision to build a community-owned wind farm in Dalesford. And I thought, oh, it sounds like a good idea. I, I signed up to on the mailing list and went along to a meeting where they were deciding whether or not the project would go ahead. 
I, I went in um, interested and I came out accidentally as the chairman of the organisation. So I thought it would be like six months, we would get all the money together, sign all the contracts and build it and I could get on with my life. But it ended up taking about three years to raise the money and do all all that other stuff and, and build the project. All up, I was involved with the project for about eight years, but it, it put up two turbines on a, on a hill a little bit south of Dalesford that, that generate as much power as the town uses and owned by the community. So through that, I got an understanding of the intersection, I guess, between renewable energy, community, politics, communication, raising money, all of it came together. And, and it really set me up understanding the power of what happens when a whole bunch of people locally get together and they have access to, it's amazing. P- people often say, well, where are you going to get the skills in a community or where are you going to find the talented candidates? And they forget that Australia is full of talented and interesting people and they all live somewhere. They're all part of a community. We kind of discount the community at our peril because the communities with highly talented participants who are keen to make change, whether it's something very, very local and, and seemingly small like a, a, a renewable energy project um, or whether it's a political movement that moves the dial in, in an otherwise you know, formally safe seat. Communities can come together and do amazing stuff when they're well organised and when they've, got, when they've got a mission to be on. And that's what happened at the last May election. So I, I yeah, it's a direct line between what I did, the community wind farms, and my involvement with the community independence movement. Yeah, it's nice to see that someone for once is kind of learning these lessons from overseas and applying them here rather than so many people in Australia who just shrug their shoulders and say, no, better things aren't possible. But I did want to know, you spoke a bit about your own origin story and the origin of the Climate 200 movement. Would you say that there is much planning for the distant future? Is there an end goal for the so-called Teal movement or is it just taking it election by election? Well, the Teal, the teal movement, if it's we, – we, we don't generally use the word Teal because it's so much bigger than that. Like um, no one called Kathy McGowan or Helen Haynes a Teal, but that's – that's that's so much you know the the origins of of the movement and Rebecca Sharkey and David Pocock are all part of this community independent independent movement. Um, Andrew Wilkie down in uh, down in Tassie and there are about six independents that came second at the federal election, most of whom were in regional areas. So Alex Alex Dyson, Rob Priestley, these these are all came close and may well may well win next time. So what generally the movement is. It, it is it is highly decentralised. It's people who want local representation. So that's their end goal. My end goal is that we have a parliament where there's a majority of MPs that support science-based response to climate change, that support rooting out corruption from politics, and support advancing gender equity or you know the the treatment of um, of, of women, the treatment and safety of women in Australia. So yeah. Basically, climate, integrity and women are three big issues that Australia needs to address. And I'm involved to the extent of trying to encourage a, a majority of MPs that feel the same way. And I, I think yeah, we saw from the federal election that a majority of Australians do want those things, whether it was independents or Labor who had better policies on that, that end or the Greens. We saw a very significant swing at the last federal election shying away from you know a decade of of 
of denial on those issues. Look, we're big sports guys, Simon. It's it's colours, colour-based things for us. Red, blue, <laughs> teal, grey, orange, green. You know, that's we're rugby league country <laughs> up here. That's, um, that's how our brains work. Fair enough. I wanted to know there, that those are the three key issues at the moment, integrity, gender equity and climate change. But say moving forward in, you know, the couple of election cycles time and we actually, God help us, have some progress on climate change, significant enough progress that a lot of people are basically agreeing we are moving in the right direction, things are happening, this is something that we can all get behind and we have an integrity body which is hopefully stronger than the one that's being proposed and, you know, there is some progress and uh, much more movement on the gender equity side of things. Does it look like a movement you'll continue to be involved in from the creating independent candidates standpoint and creating greater community representation? Or is there a little bit of a little bit of a side of you that goes, okay, well those are the key things I was really focused on. I might take a step back now. Or are you more now driven by basically ensuring greater community representation in politics? Yeah, so so the yeah, independents are not new. There there was like I think there are ninety five that ran in 95 independents ran in 2019 and I think 105 ran in 2022. So it's quite quite a lot. Most independents only get a few hundred votes um, and you never hear from them again. This this model, this new model where a community comes together and it's not it's not driven by someone who puts their hand up and says, vote for me. It's, it's driven by a community that says, we want representation. And they go out and find someone. I love that model. I think we end up with, we, we end up with a better democracy when people are answerable to their electorates rather than answerable to their uh, factions, party, branches, donors. So often we'd look at the voting records of, of MPs and find, you know, like Jason Falinski's voting record and Barnaby Joyce, you know, Jason Falinski and Barnaby Joyce had basically the same voting record. I, I think there's a, there's a major failing with the party system that you end up having people whose loyalties are number you know, definitely to the party before it is to the to the seats they represent. So I'm I'm excited to be involved in a movement that is bringing democracy back closer to what it should be, and, and I'm really happy for as many community, you know, really keen and encourage as many communities get to get involved. But personally, the ones I'm excited to to help are the ones who are passionate about climate integrity and women. Now, it, the candidates, um, we didn't choose their policy platforms. They didn't, you know, they weren't given anything and, and uh, any, any any platforms. And if you look at the candidates, they've all got their own things they're passionate about. Up in Indi, they're, they're still passionate about getting local hospital involved. And you'll find that's the, um, th- that'll be, you know, number one priority on, on one of the candidates that, that a community independent that ran up there at the state election was was getting the local hospital. Go for it. Like, I, you know, wh- whatever issue matters in, in your area, go for it. But if, if climate integrity and women also matter to you, then um, if you want our, ha- want our help, we'll, we'll do what we can to help you. Um, can't help everyone. Um, we don't have the resources to do so, but, we'll, but we do try to help where we can make a difference and where we're welcome. So what does that help look like for the Teal candidates on the campaign? And then how much does it change or transform if they do get elected and start serving in office? Yeah, and I'll just, you know, again, I, I sort of bristle at Teal. We don't think of them as Teal. It's useful for you guys, right? It's useful for media because they, they, you need to have a label. And community independence is a very, you know, it's a big a big mouthful and I, I, I get it. But I don't know, no, no one seems to call David Pocock a Teal or Rebecca Sharkey or... Uh, Andrew Wilkie, we're we're just as happy to help them, and in fact, we we 
did help uh, all of them, and we, we, we were so. And, and there were plenty. The majority of the candidates we supported did not wear a colour that was remotely close to the, the colour teal. I think people so are, just people are too scared to call David Pocock anything. I reckon, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> particularly face to face. When I think of Pocock, I just think I mean, of the gold of the Wallabies jersey. That's how I see him. Yeah. Exactly. He probably should have just run in his in his Wallabies outfit. That that probably should have been his team jersey, and uh, it would have would have done even better. Um, I mean, he, I think he's doing an outstanding job. I think people who didn't have an idea of the man beforehand thought of him as a you know just a sporting personality, and he's shown himself to be you know, a deep thinker, very very sober in his decision making, constructive. He's not doing stunts. He's just. I think he's. He's an outstanding example of the kind of people we want to have in Parliament. You don't see him, don't don't imagine that he's uh, uh, answering to any vested interest. He's in the public interest. But so to your to your question, how did, what does help look like? Well, okay, so think about, one, one of the things I think is most exciting about this movement is is previously parties have been necessary to run campaigns because it's, it's very, it's, there's a lot that goes on in running running a campaign. But just like every other industry has been disrupted by technology and new business models, tech disruptions finally come to politics, allowing, yeah, n- now a small startup company can compete with the big with the big guys just by picking a very particular thing and doing it really well. And you can start up a company and you can get yourself a virtual chief financial officer and you can advertise on Facebook like the majors do. You can get a, a, a contractor in to to do whatever, you, know, you, you can build a small company that can compete against majors these days. And a community can now build a political campaign that can compete against the majors. You, you need to make sure, you know, there's a good lawyer in your in your midst. You need to be, have access to policy experts. You need to understand political marketing and all, all, of, all of the rules as well. You need political strategy, community engagement, running events, fundraising, you know, all of these skills that come together so a community can compete against the majors. And one of the skills that's very important is fundraising. And we work with campaigns to help them fundraise. At the federal election, in all the campaigns you will have heard of, we were actually a minority funder. We, we, we provided well less than half of, of their funding, but we, we helped them at the critical early stages with, say, matching programs where we went out and said, you know, if you can raise 100 grand, we'll match it. And that really helped kickstart their fundraising. We taught them some fundraising skills and we've been doing similar things, but under much tighter constraints at the, at the state elections at Victoria and New South Wales. But also if campaigns come to us and they say, we've got no idea how to put together a phone banking program where, where, where you have peer-to-peer phone calls or you know, how do you get a successful door-knocking campaign together, we'll put them in touch with people who know this kind of stuff. We'll, we'll, we'll help them rapidly upskill so that they can get to the same kind of knowledge that the parties have developed over a very long time. So it's about being part of the ecosystem of people who are helping this movement grow. Um, so we're not directing it, but we uh, you know, recognise that you need fundraising to, to be successful, especially it's funny, the state campaigns, are the major parties are almost totally funded by taxpayers for their campaigns whereas the independents have to raise every cent. It's a, a strange artefact of our donation laws that the parties have their campaigns paid for by the taxpayer, whereas if you're an outsider, you have to fundraise the money yourself. And fundraising's hard. Mm. So that's where we've 
provided a fair bit of advice to campaigns on how they can go about their fundraising. We've got a question that we made you bristle a couple of times. This one will probably make you bristle as well. Wanted <laughs> to know, obviously, climate change, it's been something you've been passionate about for a long time, something you've been involved with campaigning for a long time. Do you have financial interests? I, I know you've come out previously and said that you don't have financial interests, but from a layperson's standpoint, looking in and uh, wondering why this very successful business person is so interested in climate change. Is it purely an ideological thing or are there uh, any financial interests behind it? So what I've been, been, been really clear, I've got um, something like two to 5% of, of my investments are in the uh, are in climate tech, which is a lot of people's super would be you know, between you know, superannuation uh, funds invest in renewables as well. So I've, I've never said I've got nothing, but it's it's um, it's relatively minor and it's, you know, advisors keep saying, why have you not got more? Why, why have you not got more? And it's probably, you know, haven't, I haven't got more in this space because I haven't had, you know, I've been, I've been completely distracted by this. So over time, I imagine um, all of us uh, will be investing more and more in decarbonisation sector. But, you know, one, one point I will make is that most of my investments in this area are overseas. There's not a lot of opportunities in Australia. The investment that I do have in Australia will not actually benefit from more renewables. They will increase competition in the renewable space if we have more. So any idea that I'm passionate about climate action because it'll it, it'll um, you know having more MPs in Parliament would somehow help me financially is you know firstly a simplistic view and also also wrong. So yeah, but why? Yeah, why? Oh, I was more just asking just should... from the, the there's huge financial opportunities in decarbonisation and a clean future. You know, like we've seen, yeah, there are. Forest definitely... matching up with the uh, New South Wales state government for a couple of billion dollar investment in hydrogen energy, which he will then be making money from. So I was just checking in from that. Yeah, there definitely there definitely are huge huge opportunities for Australia. It's it's funny we've we've spent most of the last decade talking about. The costs of mm. of energy transition. Uh, yeah, my, my, take my hat off to Ross Garner, who's been banging on for nearly a decade now about <laughs> the opportunities for Australia immense. Yeah, one one thing he's kind of put put out a book uh, end of last year that talks. Yeah, so we we hear often that Australia is only one point three percent of global emissions, and I think oh that's great. We only have to deal with one point three percent of global emissions. We don't have to do the whole lot. We've just got this little slice that we need to deal with to do our bit. Ross goes further and says that actually Australia is in a great position to reduce global emissions by about 7% additional. About 7% of the world's emissions are in industries that would be much easier in a decarbonised environment to have in Australia. So Australia has an opportunity to reduce global emissions massively and be paid for it. Not only have we got the boundless plains that are absolutely drenched in sunlight and, you know, blowing a gale across many of them much of the time. So we've got a global advantage in cheap energy, but we also have a massive advantage in the critical minerals of the of the decarbonisation ahead. You know, few people realise that about half the world's lithium comes from Australia. You know, every, every EV that's driving around, half of the, the lithium that's gone into those electric vehicles has come from Australia. We're a significant global miner of copper, and nickel and you know, all sorts of minerals that are going to be critical for this transition. So the opportunities for Australia are immense. And um, yeah, my but 
yeah, there's a lot of things I could be doing other than helping communities try find representatives and get them into in, into parliament. But it's been a highly rewarding journey so far of just you know, the people the people I've met the optimism, people who have been completely disengaged from democracy. So many of us have felt shut out from democracy and it's supposed to be ruled by the people, but most of us have felt like it's not its not something we'd either want to get involved with or can get involved with. And you know, on, on election day last May, there were 20,000 people around the country volunteering for the community independence uh, and so many of them said it's the most fun they've had in many, many years. Simon, thank you very much for joining us today. It was great to chat to you. Uh, I just had to make you bristle one <laughs> last time. Appreciate it. The man behind the community bristle. independence. Thank you very much. Appreciate all your time. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Wendell. Thanks, Dave.